Welcome to the One Mic, One Voice show, Building the Collective Conscious, a show that is created to give space where your voice, ideas, and informed opinions can be heard, appreciated, and yay, debated. I am Michael Eric Owens. And I'm DT. Hey. uh, (laughs) Hey, we did something a little different, man, to start the show. We, um... We went live. Had a little uh, chatter before the, the show started. So, folks, hey, listen. Once we go live, just just uh, just tune right in because, um, you know, we are, uh, you know, one mic, one voice. <laughs> and we, we also posted uh, on our, I guess, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, our YouTube channel. So you can catch all our shows there. They can just pop up. Right away, probably you got to notice even about this show. So not only listen, but subscribe and encourage your friends to do the same. Right. That's right. And and plus, you know, say, make do a little comment. You know, we, we like all comments. You know, we really like the positive ones, though. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't shy away from the negative ones, too, because like you said, this, this is a place where your voice can be heard, appreciated. But yet debated. Yet debated. Inform opinions. So make sure you do your homework. Folks, this is one on one. Episode one on one. One on one. We on the other side, D. <laughs> and our title today is The Price of Race in America. The price of race in America. We're gonna get deep into this thing. But I want to um can we do some forty five and down the road? Buckle up your seat. Buddy. Can we do that? Can we do that? It's, it's, it's Richard prepared. That's the that's he's scrambling now. See, look at sh- he's shrugging his <laughs> shoulders and, and everything. He's supposed to be like on point, forty five and down the road. I can tell you what, it's crazy. It's crazy what's going on in our country today. Um, but I want to dig it, man. This uh, this guy Roy Moore. Talk a little bit about this guy. Um, Moore was elected to be the uh, to the position of uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in Alabama on 2001, but was removed from his position D in November '03 by the Alabama Court of Judicial for refusing a federal court order to remove a marble monument of the Ten Commandments he had installed in the lobby of the Alabama Judicial Building. He then sought the Republican nomination for the governorship. He ran for governor twice in 06 and 2010, but lost in the primaries. Uh, Of course, um, he again uh, won election to the chief justice in 2013, but then was suspended uh, for directing the probate judges to continue to enforce the state's ban on same-sex marriages despite it had been found to be unconstitutional. I mean, that's defiant. That's, <laughs> he's defiant. How did he get back to the court twice? That's 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 where I was confused. 
at because he has not only has he been accused and, and we're going to watch this video here just in a section, but not only has he been accused of uh, sexual harassment and assault, but he has been outspoken. I don't know. Recently, you heard him just say that they, he was asked the question, when was America great? And he said, well, during slavery times, you know, he said, yeah, that slavery thing. But families were strong. America was strong. Direction. The country had a direction <laughs> during slavery. I, I don't know, man. The destruction of the black family, the selling of bodies, the raping of women. I don't think that constitutes. Maybe it constitutes a direction to hell. But I don't think it constitutes like strong family bonds when um, when you are chaining up people, lynching. We didn't talk about the lynching and everything that went on and the beatings that took place. And the the only murder and things that didn't get, uh, get out in books and uh, articles. And he said he wouldn't debate his his um, his challenger, Doug Jones. He said he wouldn't because Doug Jones, the Democrat wanted to debate him. He said, I would debate this guy any place, anytime, anywhere. Right. But this guy more refused to debate him because of his, he said, his very liberal stance on transgenderism, transgenderism uh, in the military and in bathrooms. What you scared of? <laughs> Isn't the debate all about Standing toe to toe with somebody that has a different opinion and worldview of you, <laughs> you know, than the right. one you carry yourself. That's what debate is all about. I don't know what do you, what do you want to do? Debate somebody that thinks and acts and talks and and behaves just like he does. You want to be able to set the stage. Well, he want pick the place. Yeah, yeah. Pick the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. He want to pick the players that he playing against. He doesn't want to go against any level of competition. But folks, let, you know. I want you, and, and this this goes back. I, I, hold on for a minute. Well, we gonna let's run this video, and then we'll we'll come back and we'll talk about it. Roy Moore and the Alabama Senate race for weeks. The White House has been asked whether President Trump would travel to campaign for Roy Moore. The president wholeheartedly throwing his support behind Moore, saying, "Quote: I like a fighter. Go get him, Roy." Tonight, the president is making an appearance not far from where Moore has been campaigning, and while he technically didn't travel to Alabama. He's right across the border in Florida, where many Alabama voters will no doubt see the president on their local news. Here's ABC's chief national correspondent, Tom Yamas, tonight. Tonight, the president is in Florida, but Alabama is on his mind. This guy's screaming, we want Roy Moore. He's right. Earlier, the president tweeting, vote Roy Moore, saying, last thing the Make America Great Again agenda needs is a liberal Democrat in the Senate. But tonight, Moore's own comments about that Make America Great Again message facing new scrutiny. At a rally in September, Moore described a time when he thought America was great, a time before the Civil War. The Los Angeles Times now releasing that audio. Nothing was great at the time when families were united, even though we had slavery, they cared for one another. People were strong in the families, our families were strong. Our Moore went on to say slavery was one of those problems. His campaign telling me, of course the judge opposes slavery. This as eight women accuse him of a range of inappropriate sexual behavior. Two say he sexually assaulted them when they were teenagers. 
Beverly Young Nelson tells me Moore attacked her in his car when he was in his 30s and she was just 16. He was trying to pull me toward in between his legs. It was terrible. Moore denies all the accusations and denies even knowing Nelson. She says she has proof that Moore signed her high school yearbook. But the campaign says it's a forgery. Today, Nelson acknowledges she wrote the date, name of the restaurant, and letters DA next to Moore's signature. She says she did it to remind herself of who Roy Moore was and where and when Moore signed the yearbook. But to be clear, Beverly, he signed your yearbook. He did sign it. And you made some notes underneath. Yes. She says she stands by her story 100%. Tom Yamas with us again tonight. And Tom, Alabama voters now head to the polls on Tuesday. Well, Alabama right, voters have a moral test. Okay. Mm -hmm. This dude like little girls, man. I mean, that, <laughs> you 30-something years old, and you going to high school, going after girls? Mm -hmm. there, there's something diabolical about that. There's something, there's some debauchery there. There's just, there's just something wrong with a dude in his 30s checking out high school girls, man. I'm sorry. Yeah, that, that's that's just ain't cool, man. I mean, you in the high schools, you see these young girls, man. You got this thirty-year-old professional DA, right? He the this DA, right? He knows this is wrong, but he's got some sort of pathological um, disorder that he can't help himself, mm -hmm. right? And you know, you hear people from the Alabama area say that think about it, thinking about. Roy Moore's uh, persona in context with mm -hmm. the time was that that behavior was very common back back in the day, and in Alabama it wouldn't be any raise of an eyebrow for anybody to see a thirty year old man with some teenage girl and think it was a big deal. I don't think and that's, that's true. something wrong with that. Yeah, and, and I think the guy in that video obviously doesn't know what the hell he's talking about because <laughs> I disagree totally with that. Roy Moore. Okay, my mother. But these supporters my, of, of, of Roy exactly. Moore. Exactly. My, my mother is older than Roy Moore, right? That would have been, ain't no way a 30-some-year-old man would have been checking out my mother when she was 16 or 14 years old without my grandfather taking care of some business. You understand what I'm saying? Ain't that, there is nothing normal about that. Yeah, did they get married? Yeah, they probably got married to somebody that was, was 19, not somebody that's 30-something. Mm. Come on, man. The, the world has not changed that much in 40 years. But, D, it's interesting, and we're going to take a break here and get into our topic, the price of race in America. But it's interesting because I, I took a look at Alabama poll electoral history, just going back to uh, 1980. 1980. Mm. All Republican candidates for president. Every last one of them. You know the history, okay? Dr. King um, had his church there. Mm -hmm. um, you know the history of civil rights, the fight there. Um, but I was curious to see how does Alabama match up with Oklahoma? Mm -hmm. mm. Probably Folks. mirror image. Since 1980. Oklahoma has voted Republican. Mm -hmm. And get this. Um, it says here, 
The state voted Democratic in all but two elections through 1948. At that time, the state was ran by Democrats, right? And it says here that uh, Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton by 65% to 29%, the fourth consecutive (laughs) election that the Republicans has won by over 30% in the state of Oklahoma, right? Okay, folks, we could go on and deal with that, but you you take that little knowledge, uh, especially Oklahomans, you take that Mm -hmm. little knowledge, and when we criticize in Alabama, for being behind a pedophile and someone that has a history of sexual assault and, and sexual harassment. Let's look in the mirror. Folks, we'll take a break. We'll be right back. Join us for the annual Ralph Ellison Foundation Gala, February 24th, 2018, 6 p.m. at the Oklahoma History Center. A night of music, dance, poetry, and readings from Ellison's works. Purchase your tickets now at RalphEllisonFoundation.org or simply call 405-788-0566. Sponsored by Perry Publishing and Broadcasting, Oklahoma City Thunder, Oklahoma City University, Artisan Fine Wine and Spirit, Fred Jones Foundation, OKC Greater Chamber, Much Foundation, Full Circle Bookstore, Center for Economic Development Law, The Alliance, AT&T, Pivot Project, Metro Tech, Downtown OKC, April Coffin PC, Jason Lowe, and Blackened Studios. This is Josh K. And I am Leah Marie. And when we listen to podcasts, we always listen to One mic, one voice. You can change the world, it's your choice. Your choice. Dr. Laura Jalat, and when I listen to podcasts, I always listen to the One Mic, One Voice show. Welcome to the adventures of Splacatel, or the AOS podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Buck. And this is Tony. And we are a video game podcast, giving you all the update video game releases that are coming out that you need to know, and the video game news that we want you to know. Follow us on Facebook, Black and Gaming Network, and Twitter and Instagram at Black and Gaming. You can also find this podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Google Play by searching the AOS Podcast. Ooh! What was that? (laughs) (laughs) That was interesting. I I do appreciate Richard playing the the commercial from Dr. Lord Gelada. That brought back a lot of good memories right there. Oh man! Time up in the Wisconsin area, but anyway. But anyway, um, the okay. So, so the price of race in America. Think about this. It's costing something, mm-hmm. um, and I and 
and it has a historical cost. Um, but it's but but it's uh, we're gonna listen to Warren Buffett, um, billionaire. the billionaire. And and we're not going to listen to the whole video, but we're going to go to a spot in there that I think speaks to this price uh, of race. We 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 in America, but in our world today, let's take a listen. Nice wheels. Yeah. <laughs> well. So uh, how old is this caddy? I think it's about five years or so. You'd think the third richest man in the world might have his own chauffeur, but not Warren Buffett. He prefers being in the driver's seat. Do any of your billionaire friends ever joke with you about the Cadillac and that you're driving and not a something flashier? Uh, no, they really, they know me pretty well. On a cold winter morning, Buffett chauffeured me around his hometown of Omaha, Nebraska, pointing out all the hot spots. This is the McDonald's I go to frequently. So what do you have at McDonald's? Probably three times out of four, I get a sausage and McMuffin. And, but then at lunchtime, I get a quarter pounder and fries. A modest meal for a man worth some $46 billion. His humble tastes have humble origins. Yeah, well, that is true. It was a Sears Roebuck house. And in those days, they called it Sears Roebuck, not Sears. Buffett took us to his childhood home. My dad bought it in 1925. He bought it about two weeks before he was going to get married. He paid $55 a month on his mortgage. 55 A month. A month. Uh, yeah, on the mortgage. Buffett since moved, but says his new home is no palace either. I could buy any house in the world, and, and, and I don't want any other house than the one I'm in. You know, and that house is in a middle-class neighborhood. I'm happy in a pair of khakis and a sweater, so I, I, don't, I, I don't need fancy clothes. I don't need fancy food. Do you have an iPad? I do not have an iPad. iPhone? No. He prefers books. And reads avidly. Even as a boy, Buffett, whose father started a small stock brokerage, devoured anything he could find on money. I bought my first stock when I was 11. <laughs> Which is incredible that at 11 years old you were buying your first stock. Well, I would have bought it sooner, but I didn't have the money. <laughs> I, it took me it took me about five years to save 120 dollars. That was in 1941. Oh, there I am down at the bottom here. There you are in the, I'm, this I'm over here, and that's Bob Russell and Rich You kind of have like a little bit of a grin on your face. I like... must, have, must have been thinking about uh, investments at the time. <laughs> Warren Buffett, now 82, has vowed to give his money away to charity. So this is you. Well, this is me and my classmates. It's a fortune he's been building since his days here at Rose Hill Elementary School. When you were sitting here at Rose Hill Elementary, did you think at that point, I want to be the richest man in the world someday? Uh, no, but I thought I wanted to be rich. <laughs> <laughs> what appealed to you about being rich? Well, I like to be independent. I, I want to be able to do what I want to do every day, and, uh, and, and money lets you do that. Fortune magazine writer Carol Loomis is a close friend. She's been covering Buffett's career for 46 years. Tap Dancing to Work is a collection of her articles about him. What would you say is his biggest strength? Well, his biggest strength, without doubt, is his rationality that he brings to business and investing. And uh, this is a trait, rationality, that you would think many investors uh, would bring to their work. But the fact is, uh, most of them are swept up by emotions most of the time at some crucial time. And he never does that. 
If you had invested $1,000 in Buffett's company in, say, April of 1966, your holdings today would be worth $6.5 million. What role has luck played in your success? Well, there's, there's, luck enters into everybody's life. And Buffett says that begins at birth. The womb from which you emerge uh, uh, determines uh, your fate to an enormous degree for most of the seven billion people in the world. Just in my own case, I was born in 1930. I had two sisters that have every bit the intelligence I have, every bit the drive, but they didn't have the same opportunities. Because you were a man. I, and I was white. Uh, so if I'd been black, my future would have been entirely different. If I'd been a female, my life would have been entirely different. Buffett is just as outspoken about... If I had have been black, my life would be entirely different. That is a chilling statement from Mr. Buffett. And I find Mr. Buffett to be a, um, a very content person mm -hmm. and a very humble person. Uh, he's not arrogant. He gives a lot of money to charity. He speaks very, I think, clearly about the problems, economic problems, mm -hmm when it comes to taxation on, on the middle class and the poor. Uh, and to hear him say that, this successful guy that says, if I was not male and white, my life would be completely different. Now, and, and he also, D, talks about this idea of he wanted to be rich so that he could have his independence, mm -hmm. so that he could be free from the constraints, and I'm adding to his thoughts here, of society's pressure. Um, so the opposite of that is being dependent mm -hmm. and not being free, right? Um, and the opposite of him not being white, male, his different origin of birth, as he talked about coming out the womb, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. His life would not be the same. The price of race. So what, what, is, what, is, what does that say? What, what do we take away from that? I have to tell you that when I first heard this, this clip, I was a little taken back by uh, just the sheer... Um, I mean, crucialness in reality that he brought to the table. Uh, and when you asked me a question a few episodes back about potential mm -hmm. and about whether or not as a black person I feel like I'll reach my potential, and to some degree and with some, um, I guess, personal confidence and arrogance maybe, I, I said, you know, yeah, you know, I think y'all think I'll be everything I'm going to be. But, I mean, and, that's, and it's still funny because I know that um, – a black life is limited. Mm. And so there may be lots of things that I think in my mind that I'll accomplish and that I'll get to, but there will be roadblocks because of the attitudes of some people that will stand in the way on my way there. And so that kind of brings into a, a kind of a dim light on the situation, but it's the reality because, you know, we've had several conversations about, uh, things that happen in history that we see, and if it was a black person, if it was a white person, and how the situations play out as a result of that. 
And this is the same thing. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about money. We're talking Mm -hmm. about the potential to build up an independence. I've never heard any black man say, I can buy any house in the world that I want. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. That's like a a figment of your imagination to have that type of ambition. And, And even if you could say that and you have the money, it's not true. Because there are neighborhoods that you cannot get in. There are communities that will not accept you. So when we talk about the potential aspect of one's life, I mean, this this is a cold, hard fact. Now, I know, I know there are people listening to us that will say, you can't say that. You can't discourage someone like that, right? But yet, but it, here we are in 2017, the first black this, the first black that. Is it better for me to lie to you? The very fact that we have to say the first black, the very fact that we have to point to anomalies in the system is a problem. Do do we say the first white millionaire? <laughs> the first white CEO? Do do we do do we actually say that? The only time you find the first is is when there are let's 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 talk about the minority, okay, sphere here. When there's a woman that does something, a transgender that does something, a black, a Latino, it's always the first Latino, such and such, mm-hmm. right? That 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 is a problem in itself. Why? Because we have all been in this country since the beginning. <laughs> what did you start in the race? Okay. And I think we'll get to that, right? Okay, when we talk about opportunity. But the reality is, folks, if you don't want to hear it, close your ears, do whatever you got to do. But with systemic racism, with all the, the, the challenges, historical challenges, that minorities face in this country and worldwide, the stigmatization of of black and brown people, the stereotypes, the you know the employment discrimination, all, with, with all of those things in the bucket, there's no way a minority person can reach their full potential in this world. Go back to the Harvard study. That talked about it looked at employment Mm -hmm. and it looked at how it is easier for a white male, less education and a prison record prison record to get a job than a black man who who is college educated without a prison record. That says it all. I mean, how can you say the black person can reach their full potential when the deck is stacked against them? I don't care how much you maneuver. I don't care how well people, you know, treat you or open doors for you. Systemically, the you you start back too far and the obstacles are so great. And we're and we're going to look at that particular uh, side of things. But I, I again, I, I man, I, I this idea of if I had have been born black, 
my life would be totally different. You know, I think about that, too, in context of when it is that uh, black children come into contact with investments or talking about saving money or doing anything that is not having to do with today. Because for the most part, we function out of survival. Exactly. And there are no surplus and nothing extra and nothing, you know, to look forward to. But the fact that you may or may not be able to eat today. Absolutely. And so that's that's I mean he's he's like he's exactly right depending on who your parents were and if they were black parents i mean their their focus was on your survival most of the time trying to keep you out of jail <laughs> trying to keep you from being killed by the police maybe so so what and it's, it's you... hard to any and, this, mm-hmm. and the lady talked about you know his biggest strength being rationality mm-hmm. and being able to think clearly and being able to use logic and reason and that's hard to do when you come up in chaos absolutely the thoughts Absolutely. are not clear. <laughs> Absolutely. What would your life be if you were a colored person, a person of color? There's a pay gap going on. D, let's take a listen. U.S. retail workers, a new study finds there's a significant wage gap. No According to public policy organization Demos and the NAACP, black and Hispanic workers are paid less than their white counterparts. How much less? Well, as full-time retail salespeople, black and Latino employees make 75% of the wages of their white co-workers. For cashiers, minorities make about 90% of the wages of their white peers. The study's authors write people of color are overrepresented in the positions with the lowest pay and the least stability, and underrepresented in management positions. Black and Latino retail workers are significantly more likely than white workers to be employed part-time when they want full-time hours. This, according to the study, does nothing to help minority families economically, as 17% of black and 13% of Latino retail workers live below the poverty line, compared to the average for the retail workforce at just 9%. The study's authors made a few recommendations to lessen the disparity, like reviewing discriminatory practices and increasing minimum wage to $15 an hour. That larger debate is already happening nationwide, from Los Angeles to Chicago to San Francisco and beyond. Critics, however, say a pay increase could lead to increased prices for goods and fewer sales, which could force employers to lay off some workers. Okay. Um, you talked just a minute ago about investing, right? You talked about investing, about having that knowledge, about looking toward a future. How can you do that when you live below the poverty line? How can you do that when you're making 75% of what your counterparts or 90% of what your counterparts are making? How can you do that, D, when you are in the lowest paying jobs? How can you do that? It's tough. I mean, and even at fifteen dollars an hour, forty hours a week, no taxes—that's only twenty-eight grand a year. And you consider what it costs you to live, what it costs you to eat, what it costs you to function, and that money—you got children. That money started to go away real fast. So I'm already starting behind. Mm-hmm. I'm already I'm I'm already ten steps behind the the starting line. Right? I mean, you're getting a paycheck, but it's not yours yet. No, it's not yours yet. It belongs <laughs> to everybody else, mm-hmm. right? Listen, folks, <laughs> the price of race in America. 
and and this is what I'm trying. No, nobody. Let me let me say this because you know our white brothers and sisters, they they feel like they're you know sometimes like they're under attack. You know when we when we bring out these sort of topics and we bring out the data behind it, right? And uh, and 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 I'm I'm sympathetic and empathetic to that uncomfortable position. I am. However, okay, it is what it is. You happen to be white. You happen to be privileged. You have to be living in a society where the system benefits you versus someone like myself. I know you didn't create the system. I didn't create the system, but the system does exist. And the question for you and me and all of us is what are we going to do about this system that's the question because i'm paying a price for the skin that i'm in every day every day folks we're gonna get deeper into this we're gonna take a break pay some bills we'll be right back This is DT of the One Mic, One Voice podcast. just want to let you guys know you can go to iTunes and search us at One Mic, One Voice and be sure to rate and review our episodes. Let us know about any feedback that you have and what you enjoy about the episodes. Also, you can go over to Stitcher where you can get the latest and freshest episodes of our podcast streamed directly to your smartphone or iPad. No downloading or syncing. How cool. Real smooth. Also, we'd just like to take the time to thank you for your time and for your energy and for spending time with us as we discuss the historical record of our time. This is Koresh Ali, Lansana, poet, author, educator, and Oklahoma. And when I listen to podcasts, I'm on that one mic, one voice joint. Welcome back, folks. Listen, shot <laughs> Every time I hear him, the brother is smooth. Um, we, we're looking forward to your comments. Uh, tell us what you think about this topic. Tell us what you think about our shows. Uh, you know what? Become a member. Patreon.com slash one mic, one voice. Uh, get behind the scenes. Get all the, the content that we have. We got some nice giveaways, too. Hey, you can even probably get a guest appearance on the show. Oh, that'd be nice. So, I'm I'd just saying. That. I'd love that for myself. I'm just saying. I, I think we're pretty. You can have me on sometime. <laughs> <laughs> I think we some pretty cool dudes to hang out with. Okay. Minus Richard, though. You know, Richard. You're not going to be saying much, so don't worry. You know, Richard is kind of like we'll you get know, him a muscle in his own me. space, like you know, back off, <laughs> sort of thing. Um, getting back into. <laughs> The price of race. Think about this. There is a gap, okay, in health, housing, and education. I mean, all of these, all of these things are stacked up against people of color. But the education gap is huge. It's problematic. Schools are closing. Kids can't read at their appropriate grade level. If you can't read, how can you succeed? That was something else Buffett said. Reading was very important. Oh, man. He said he, 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 
Ate up everything. Everything. And I guarantee you his parents encouraged him to read. But when you're trying to survive, a lot of times you don't have the energy to instill these things in your children, right? Um, the heavy load is on teachers. But let's look at this. I, I, want, I want to I look at this clip here that talks about, um, you can listen to it. If you're a Patreon member, you can watch it right along with us. But the gap in education. The achievement gap is that difference in academic uh, performance and proficiency between African-American and Latino and Native American students uh, versus the uh, Anglo or white students. It's really the difference between black and brown students versus their white counterparts and the academic difference that exists. It's also by income. And in Denver, we know that income and ethnicity are highly correlated. And it's that gap that exists from achievement that um, starts at, at kindergarten and doesn't, and while we're doing a better job as a school district, it doesn't ever really close. The achievement gap, which is also frequently now talked about as the opportunity gap, um, is the inequity of opportunity that our children have to achieve the same future in their lives. Um, by especially race and class. And the question behind the achievement gap is why is some student, why do some students do so well and other students we never overcome their zip code or their parents' income level? Why can't schools make up for that? It shows up because students who have different socioeconomic backgrounds uh, don't get access to a set of skills or experiences, which means they show up to school kindergarten, fifth grade, ninth grade, freshman year of college without the same set of background they would have gotten if they were born a mile to the east or a mile to the west or with a parent that made $50,000 more than their parents make. There are some individuals who just getting out of eighth grade is enough, who just getting through high school is enough. And then there's another demographic of individuals who are being told graduate school, higher education. And I think the achievement gap that I see comes in the messaging that we give to students. I think you can also look at achievement gaps um, around academic preparation, around students with special needs, um, students who are English language learners. Um, I think there are really important gaps there as well. A lot of times uh, it has to do with what's happening at the student's home. I think the ch achievement gap really starts with what people are calling it now, which is an opportunity gap. Um, so what you see at the end is, is a reflection of what happens at the beginning of the education system. The allocation of resources for the schools, the allocation of human resources, the, the buildings that students are in, even the, the layout of buildings that way. And so I think all of those different factors go into the achievement gap. And then I think the achievement gap is, as well, the time and opportunity that our parents have to really be advocates for their own child's education. The achievement gap is that you, as a white middle-class person, has to run 26.2 miles. The Latino student has to run 30 miles. The black student who grew up in poverty of the single mom has to run 35 miles. That's really the achievement gap. What's happening is that nobody's showing up at the starting line equal. And somehow, at the end of the marathon, is a college graduation or is a, uh, a great career. Well, they have to make up 10 miles. 
when we talk about the achievement gap, which I call an opportunity gap, and the reason I do is because it's not the kids' fault they're not achieving. The blame lies here with policymakers and, and others who have neglected to really factor in uh, their, their achievement as a priority. Wow. Okay. Um, the gap doesn't ever really close. The gap doesn't ever really close. As he said, a re- the end is a reflection of, of what happened at the beginning. The gentleman talked about, you know, his analogy of miles to run, right? And I ran tracks. So I know. So you know. I mean... Once you get to the finish line, if you got to do another five miles, that's a that's a little tough, ain't it? It is. I mean, it's uh, and if you starting off, I remember I remember uh, my philosophy uh, professor, Doctor Longsway. Um, man, that man meant so much to me. Uh, still does. Um, but he talked about equal opportunity, and he said <laughs> he and this is what he said. He said it's not about equality. He said, we can be equal. And he used a racer's analogy. He said, we can be equal. He said, but if I start at the same line with Jesse Owens, do I have the same opportunity to win? He said, no, I, I, I do not. It's, it's no way. He said, you need to put me <laughs> halfway up, three-fourths <laughs> way up, right? And now I have, I have an opportunity to win. That's why we've seen programs like Affirmative Action and, and um, College Quotas and all that. Because what they were trying to do, in an essence, was to move the minority person up so that they could have the same opportunity to succeed. Because where they are starting at, teachers, teachers. Understand that when you have minority kids in your classroom, that they are behind already. Now, there's anomalies. I get it. But the majority of them, they're behind. You see this every day. They are behind already. And you must teach them in a way that brings them up to the point where they have the same opportunity to succeed. And it's right? going to be tough. Little Johnny ain't no joke sometimes. You know what? Little Johnny is um, probably being raised by his grandmother. Um, she's on limited income. Uh, he's coming to school hungry. He's made fun of by the other kids. Right? Little Johnny's thinking about maybe even walking through a neighborhood that he feels unsafe in trying to get home. And when he gets home, he doesn't know what's going to go on because, you know, maybe yeah, yeah. the sister's there with a, with a boyfriend and he's a gangbanger. What, what, what did the one person say? It's the home. The home is critical, Right. Go back to Mr. Buffett. 
the womb in which you come out of (laughs) determines a lot of your fate. Let's look at the numbers real quick, Mike. So um, talking about the gap, uh, we see here that the divide between the wealth of a typical black family and a typical white family today is vast. A median black family has just $1,700 in wealth, total assets minus total debt. 30 years ago, that same family has 6800 in today's dollars. Latino families at the median have similar, similarly small assets, just $2,000, and also saw a decline over the past three decades. Or would wait. Mm, gets better. Our white median household wealth, meanwhile, is significantly higher. Um, looking at about $116,800, and that's up from wow. 102000 over the same period. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, why, so while minority folk um, household values are declining, our counterparts on the uprise are looking better and better. Yeah. And this is a and, and and the one talked about the policy question. It is a policy question, and I would say that a policy is just a synonym for a system, right? Because a system is made up of policies, is constructed of of uh, different laws and statutes and so forth that construct the system in which people then operate the system and are operated by the system. So. Clearly, we know, even with this new tax plan, that's why this new tax plan is so dangerous, because it's cutting out some of the entitlements that try to do what, D? It tries to help bring people up the ladder, right? It mm-hmm. compensates. It mm-hmm. compensates for what they don't normally have, right? And to cut those out, we will continue to see this gap, this gap, this gulf get wider and deeper, right? Mm, gulf, I like that. Yeah, but I read that like you know earlier today. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. But you know what I'm saying. So, we're so readers, <laughs> right? So what I'm saying, this is this is what we're dealing with. This is why it's relevant. This is why today in today's society, we need to continue to talk about race and our problems that we have, and to ignore it, to ignore it, simply makes our country worse, right? And, you know, again, we're all part of the solution. But, D, (laughs) what what is this preoccupation with skin color? You know, I had a friend uh, send me a a text uh, this past week, one of our listeners, and he asked me, you know, when did the first slave trade happen? Mm -hmm. We know that there have been slaves forever throughout the history, but when was it? about um, race instead Mm. of economics. In my view, that those things have been one and the same for the beginning of time. Yeah, I mean, you're right. What, uh, you know, slavery, oppression, power, um, substitute, um, why do those things if there is not at the core of that idea some sort of superiority, 
right? So I'm better, I'm smarter, more capable, and I will use you for my benefit, right? Um, Just like that crazy clown Richard Spencer said that um, a guy was, uh, I posted on our one mic page, this guy was interviewing him, this black British guy was interviewing him, and and he said slavery was good for black people because they were black people are would be doing they're they're doing much better now than what they would be doing in Africa. And this British brother was so kind of like taken back by this by this statement. Right, I was going to say something else that Richard would have to bleep out, but this idea that. He opposed to him. So what you're saying that for two centuries, that if black people had to stay in their own country and work their own land and built their own economy, that they would be worse off than living here or being enslaved here, building a country for someone else. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, but, but this is the white nationalistic thought. They've and come I, to save the day, right? And this is what I will also say is that what we have inherent in our policies and in white privilege itself is a white nationalistic thought. In other words, a system that benefits a certain class of people, meaning white people, is white centric, which is equal to white nationalism, right? white supremacy right um and until you can get that out what what was that 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 um we, we won't do any better but what was that just um that one um congressman of um i forget where he was he talked about how diversity was all wrong assimilation assimilation is what we need Right. Not diversity. In other words, I don't need what you bring. You just need to be like me. And when he says that, he says you need to be white. Right. But even if I tried to be white, you wouldn't accept me because my skin is too dark. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. This is Elijah Bailey. This is Richard Taplin. From the Elijah Bailey Show, bringing you all the content that you could ever desire about anime, manga, comic books, martial arts, fitness, and more. You can find us at Elijah Bailey Show on the official Facebook page and also Elijah Bailey Show without the W on Twitter and Instagram. Make sure to follow, subscribe, like, comment, and rate on iTunes and Podbean. All right, folks, listen. This preoccupation with skin, I want you to take a listen to how this affects those clothed in this darker skin. It's something that I don't usually talk about because I'm afraid that I'm making people uncomfortable. It's something that affects me in almost every aspect of life. There's something about having dark skin on a woman's body that shapes the way she moves through the world. There's something about having darker skin on a male body that shapes the way in which he moves through the world. It has real life stakes. 
from what I've seen growing up. Dark skin equates to being poor, dirty, ratchet. They tend to be the bad guys in Tyler Perry movies. Straight from the border. That doesn't even make any sense. I'm not deemed as beautiful, therefore I am not beautiful. And those two are not really mutually exclusive. Could it be that something as early as colonization or slavery is primarily responsible for our beauty standards today? We're talking about who works in the field and who works in the house. We're also talking about rape, the rape of slaves to produce um, people who are known as mulattoes or, or mixed race. These standards of beauty travel. Eurocentric standards of beauty travel. In the Dominican society and our culture, they um, have a phrase that's like, mejorando la raza, advancing the Dominican population and making sure we're going into how they say the better. If you're lighter, you're bettering the race and you're bettering the island versus if you're just being you. I would get called the blackness. Uh, one joke that really stuck with me was like, oh, Edgar's so black that when he leaves a car, the check engine light turns on. That was a reference to my skin being as dark as oil. I felt ugly being of a darker skin tone. So I tried to gel my hair or I started listening to skater punk music. So I tried culturally to lighten myself, if that makes sense. I went on a trip to Korea with my mom. Some woman walked up to my mom and she asked, why is your daughter so dark? In Korea, you have to be pale and I almost felt like a foreigner and not so much Korean anymore. When we turn off the lights, they say, oh, Salorm, where did you go? Or, oh, you're really pretty for a dark-skinned girl. Are you saying that my race and just the fact that I am black, is that not attractive in general? I remembered one time that I wanted to be an angel in a parade. At that time, they were like kind of racist, you know, they didn't like black people to be angels. And my mommy got kind of freaked out. She was going like, please don't, you cannot be an angel because they're gonna laugh at you. I said, but mommy, I am an angel. And finally, I was an angel. And I was the only black angel walking in the street. And my mommy was so proud about it. And I was proud too. My mom started buying me a cream called Fair and Lovely. I was in third grade when I started using um, <laughs> bleaching creams. And the whole general uh, idea was, if I'm lighter, I'll have a better life. I'll, have, I'll find somebody that's gonna love me. There would still be light and dark patches on my body and my face. It's painful, it would hurt, and I started breaking out in like bad rashes. And no one said anything. I, I had to stop it myself. How do we fix this? We think critically about colorism. We think about where it began uh, and where it begins and ends with us. I think change starts with providing more diversity, you know, providing more examples of people that look like you. If you look at telenovelas, they usually cast the dark-skinned person as the villain. And if you never met a Latino before, you're gonna somewhat think that. So in Japanese media, I honestly don't think I've ever seen a darker-skinned female. I feel it would be nice to see a change. It needs to start within our own culture, where we can't have Will Smith filling in every slot for black people giving dark-skinned people roles that are not only supporting roles, but leading roles. I mean, a legit, badass 007 Latino James Bond, that'd be pretty dope, I'm just saying. If I could give a message to 
Someone like me. Who's kind of looking at himself and feeling insecure. Just know, baby, you beautiful. Believe in yourself. Just be you. You are perfect just the way you are. That's something that no one has ever told me. And your skin color is a gift. It's never been a blemish or a problem. When you grow up and you look in the mirror and you're proud of who you are, it will make sense and all the other voices will go away and all that's going to be left is you. How many people in the world are experiencing this? Mm-hmm. This was an international right, perspective. It was not just America. It was from all different types of countries and cultures, and we find that darker skin is viewed similarly around the world. Right? Right. So, understand that people are grappling with this at a very primal level of with their humanity. That's what's, it, it's, it saddens me to know that people are looking at themselves and they have taken what the world says or the, the inability to move up through this system and they say, I hate myself or I don't like myself because I'm not white. It's really sad, man. It's, it's, it's <laughs> man. I mean, I, I see this all the time because, I mean, kids, even at an early age, are now distinguishing themselves, light skin, dark skin, uh, like the jokes. I hear all, I mean, it's, it's normal almost wow. that um, even at a young age, that's how you distinguish yourself from your peers or from people who, you know, may be less than or whatever. Uh, and it's it's really sad to see kids having to deal with that at such a, a early <clears throat> early age, and then the lack of confidence and a lack of self esteem, mm-hmm. poor self esteem that this type of language, and we get back to that because we've talked so much about language on the open mic show. I mean the the one mic show we talk so much about language on our show that it's true. I mean. Uh, and you get other folks who are monetizing your your uh, insecurity. Absolutely, uh, selling you a, a skin lightening cream or uh, something to you know disguise yourself. And making your kids, making your kid use skin lightening cream. Man, you know what? Let's wrap up. I want to wrap up this video here. With Greg Popovich, you if you don't know him, he's a one of the greatest coaches that have ever coached a game of basketball. He coaches San Antonio Spurs. He's a five-time champion uh, coach with them. Uh, he's a white male, um, can be blunt, but he was speaking, in my view, about the price of race let's take a listen well I, I, you know i don't i don't think about some platform that i have i'm an individual uh i live in this country i have a right to say and think what i want it's got nothing to do with you know my position if it helps somebody else think one way or the other about something great but the discussion has to take place uh you know it's it's <laughs> 
you know, obviously, you know, race is the elephant in the room, and we, and we all understand that. But uh, unless it is talked about constantly, it's not going to get better. People get bored. Oh, is it that again? They pull in a race card again. Why do we have to talk about that? Well, because it, it's uncomfortable. And there has to be an uncomfortable element in the discourse for anything to change. You know, whether it's the LGBT movement or, you know, uh, women's suffrage, uh, race, it doesn't matter. Uh, people have to be made to feel uncomfortable, and especially white people, because we're comfortable. We still have no clue of what being born white means. And if, if you read some of the, you know, uh, recent literature, you'll realize it really is no such thing as whiteness. Uh, but we've kind of made it up. Uh, that's not uh, my original thought, but it's true. And it, 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 it's hard to sit down and, and decide that, yes, it, it's like you're at the 50, you know, the 50 meter mark in a 100 meter dash. Uh, and you got that kind of a lead. Yes, because you were born white, you have advantages that are systemically, uh, culturally, psychologically there. And they've been built up and cemented for hundreds of years. But many people can't look at it. It's, it's too difficult. Uh, it, it can't be something that is on their plate on a daily basis. Uh, people want to hold their position. People want the status quo. People don't want to give that up. And until it's given up, it's not going to be fixed. Yeah. I've been doing his homework. Huh? I think he listened to our show before we had it. <laughs> because I, he, he summed up what we've been trying to say here. Um, in episode 101, this idea of we made up this idea of whiteness. We created a system that buttressed these ideas and these policies. And then we placed it in the operation, right? And then for those that are benefiting from it, not all of them, for a segment, we ignore it as if it doesn't exist. Because... It's too difficult, as he says, to look at. Because if we look at it, it's uncomfortable, right? It's painful, right? But he says something. Not to, not to the person of color. He says something to our white brothers and sisters. And hear me out until you give it up. Nothing will change until you give up your privilege until people of color are not paying a price for the skin that they are in nothing will change uh one of my immediate thoughts is that um i mean i know that can that can be very uncomfortable even having this conversation with other white friends of mine um because we have a relationship, it's, it's not that, you know, they're so quick to get on the defensive. But even in having the discussion, it's tough because you can see the wheels turning. Maybe some that hadn't turned before. And even like Pop mentioned, a lot of people who are white don't even understand what that means yeah. just yet. 
And so now that we have literature and things that come out about white privilege, as, as more people get more socially conscious about who we are and what's going on, it's, it's a good sign that people are starting to, um, you know, kind of get that sense of self and a sense of, you know, what's really happening. But a lot of people are just in the dark and coming, exa- coming completely from the dark into even a little bit of light is like, my eyes hurt too much, man. Yeah. I don't want to see that. It's frightening. <laughs> it's frightening because when when you become knowledgeable of something, then there's accountability. When you receive the truth, you have to do something. You can reject it, but if you accept the truth, the truth will change you. The cookbook says the truth shall set you free. It is this revelation of privileged status that many of our white brothers and sisters have a fear of embracing and understanding and getting to the point where they relinquish that and begin to talk as we talk. Right. Begin to have the hard conversations with their families, with their friends, with their students, with their co-workers. They begin to they they become advocates for the truth, not the advocates for black liberation or minority liberation. You become advocates for the truth. Just tell the truth. Just tell the truthful narrative, because history will speak of us. Somewhere in the distant future, a scribe will reach down deep into the archives of our time, and what will she find? Will she discover that we overcame our differences? Will she find that out of many, we became one? Or will she find that we solved nothing and remain a divided peoples? Yes, history will speak of us. We can make a difference if we try. We can be the change that's in our life. All we gotta do is work together. We gotta raise our children better. We gotta stop the hate, stop the hate, and spread the love. One mic, one voice. You can change the world, it's your choice. One mic, one voice. You can change the world, it's your choice. One mic, one voice. You can change the world, it's your choice. One mic, one voice. You can change the world, it's your Today's broadcast is being brought to you by Blacken Studios. To learn more about Blacken Studios, please visit them at blackenstudios.com or visit them on their Facebook page, Blacken Studios. Today's broadcast is also being brought to you by Perry Publishing and Broadcasting. To learn more about Perry Publishing and Broadcasting, please visit their website at perrypublishingandbroadcasting.net. 
The opinions of the One Mic, One Voice show do not reflect the views of Black and Studios or Perry Publishing and Broadcasting. Thank you for downloading the One Mic, One Voice show. Thank you for downloading this episode. Here on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play Music, or whatever podcasting library you're listening to this show on, please rate and review. Those reviews and ratings help us tremendously. We thank you.